So today we're joining with the church universally, acknowledging and celebrating Jesus' resurrection. There's a couple of things. Firstly, without the resurrection, Christianity is really irrelevant and nothing more than a nice set of ideas to follow. The resurrection factor is the thing that makes the difference. That being the case, there is an absolutely enormous amount of proof for the resurrection. So our young people will be able to tell me all about this when I'm finished, what the proof is, because you've got to know the proof and there's much. Firstly, there is the account of the empty tomb. So young guys, what's the first one? The empty tomb. So, so Jesus was buried in the tomb Three days later, when uh, Mary Magdalene came to uh, look and see what was going on, the stone had been rolled away. Jesus was not there. She ran and told Peter and he came back and the linen cloth was there. And that was all that was left. So the first proof is the empty tomb. The second one is the historical account. Uh, the historical account, the contemporary writers that recorded the same thing. And then there is the scriptural account. There were 500 people that witnessed him at one time. How many is that? 500 people saw Jesus at one time after his resurrection. So in a court of law, if you've got two or three, that is how you establish a fact. Two or three good witnesses, normal people who normally tell the truth, that stands in a court of law. 500 people saw Jesus at one time. I want you to remember that and where that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay? Important to know this because when you go to school and you talk about Jesus, they're going to say, what the heck are you talking about? What's the proof? It's just a story. So, uh, and, and amongst, amongst the ones that actually testified to Jesus' resurrection were hostile accusers. For instance, the Apostle Paul was a hostile accuser and he witnessed the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. So that is in the book of Acts. So where did, so Paul, he was a hostile accuser. What was he? In other words, he did not like Christians. He was not sympathetic with them. In fact, he used to stand around while other Pharisees uh, dealt with Christians treacherously. So when a hostile accuser begins to tell a different story, that is a significant proof. One of the greatest proofs was the dramatic change in the life of the disciples. So the disciples... Uh, you know, for instance, Peter followed Jesus as one of the disciples and then he denied him because he feared for his own life. You know, you can imagine what that would be like to follow Jesus and to be given to him, then he's taken away and, and, uh, and crucified and you have to say whether you're for him or against him. And do you know what Peter said? He said, I never knew him. I never knew him. He was a wholehearted follower. But when push came to shove, he denied Jesus. 
But on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and filled Peter, the transformation in Peter's life was absolutely crazy. And this is one of the greatest proofs that Jesus rose the dead. Because I don't think I would give up my life for a lie. And when it came down to it, Jesus was crucified. And that's a historical effect that we're talking about. But the dramatic change in the life of Peter and the other disciples is absolute proof. These men became eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So what's that next proof? Grace. Dramatic change. So how was he changed? He saw Jesus, but what was he like before? No, no, Peter wasn't hostile. Paul was. Okay, so he was afraid, remember? And he denied him. He said, I never knew him. So Peter, he is like one of the most significant leaders of the early church. You know, Jesus uh, raised him up to be one of his apostles. But when push came to shove, he said, I never knew him to save his life. But after the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and filled the church and Peter was totally now convinced that, that Jesus was risen from the dead and he was prepared to speak about it. That is a dramatic transformation. Okay, now the next way that you know that Jesus raised from the dead, this is personal and this is a personal thing, and you've got to ask God for this. It's personal revelation. It's personal revelation. You've got to, each one, every one of us, and this is the thing that makes Christianity real, as you have got to come to that place personally that you know, that you know, that you know. And in Romans chapter 8, it says, the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. In fact, uh, you know, when, when uh, Lynn and myself first started searching out whether we're going to follow Jesus, we had to answer all these questions. By the way, Lynn sends her apologies. She's, uh, she's not been 100% this morning. So, so all these things, you know, there was the account of the empty tomb. There was the historical accounts. Many historians have written about Jesus and, and uh, it, you cannot deny the existence of Jesus. Jesus walked the earth as a man, and it is up for each one of us to decide who Jesus really is. Eyewitnesses accounts, there were 500 people. It's like the risen Christ walking into a building like this. Everybody saw him and realized that he had been raised from the dead. This scripture also talks of the accounts that when Jesus was raised from the dead, others were also. These are, these are eyewitness accounts. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest proofs is the uh, dramatic change in the life of disciples, but perhaps the biggest, and this is the biggest. For me personally, this is the big one. I know on the inside. It's like God speaks to me on the inside. I, I receive Christ into my life by faith. And now his spirit bears witness. There's got to be that something on the inside of you that knows this is the truth. 
And some of you may be confused this morning and think, well, I haven't got that certainty. Well, what you've got to do is just start at the start and ask God to show you. Ask God to show you He will. I'll guarantee this, that if you ask Jesus to prove Himself to you, then He will do it. Maybe even before we've left this building this morning. Then there is the biblical record. And and this is what I would call the prophetic lead up. So the scriptures in the Old Testament are quite amazing because you have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. Two different documents, Old Testament before Christ, New Testament from Jesus onwards. And, you know, just yesterday I was looking at a video. I just love looking at videos that reinforce faith. And one of them talked about this. This is very interesting. I want you young guys to remember this. You have Genesis 1, verse 1. Which testament is that? Which testament is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? Old Testament, right? Oh, they're just unsure. This is a trick question like Julian asked me. I tell you what, one of the things when, uh, when preachers ask you trick questions is generally because they're tricked themselves and they're looking to the answer for you. Genesis 1.1, John 1.1 is the beginning of New Testament or Old Testament? New Testament, say big voice. New Testament. Now, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, right? And the New Testament is written in Greek. Two different books, two different languages. Genesis 1.1, John 1.1. But both Hebrew and Greek have a numerical value. This is a bit like a Sunday school class, but I tell you what, this is the facts. Is you have Genesis 1.1 written in Hebrew and John 1.1 written in two different languages, but both have a numerical value. And when you look at the first verses, the two books are tied together by a numerical code. The number three and the number one is consistent right through them. Number one is God's number. And number three is the Trinity. It's God in three persons. Isn't that amazing? So you have these actual scientific and historical facts and then you have the witness of your own heart. Now, I never had a witness in my own heart that Jesus was really God until I opened, I put my hand up at a Billy Graham crusade and literally invited him into my life. And from that day, it changed. So we have the prophetic, we have the Old Testament record, the Old Testament lead up. The scriptures in the Old Testament, in all of the Old Testament, point to a certain event in history. It's amazing. All the, if you read it from, from verse, basically the first three chapters of the book of Genesis points to an event, which is the appearance of Christ. It's this prophetic book. It's historical. There's historical books. There's poetry books. 
There is prophetic books and they all point towards something in the future, which is the appearance of Jesus. For instance, and, and in particular, the cross and resurrection. For instance, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham took his much-loved promised son, the son of promise, Isaac, to Mount Moriah because God had asked him to sacrifice his son. That is an Old Testament picture of exactly what happened at the cross, isn't it? Do you see that comparison? The interesting thing is, is that um, Abraham took Isaac to a place of Mount, uh, called Mount Moriah, and that is believed to be Calvary, exactly where Jesus gave his life up. So you see, you know, probably between 1,500 and 2,000 years before Christ, the prophetic signs are there. Amazing. This is why I believe I've looked at this stuff, I've studied this stuff, and everything in the Old Testament, which is actually a different book to the New Testament, different language, different writers, points towards the New Testament. And then there is a hidden code, if you look further, that joins these two books together, which tells me it's the same author. Who is the author? God. The Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, and I spoke about it last week, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, correction, for training in righteousness. It's 2 Corinthians 3.16. So to me, this is linked together. This book is the account of who God is. This is the Word. And the Scriptures in the Old Testament are pointing towards Jesus. Through all the covenants in the Old Testament, they all point towards Jesus, and we can talk about that. But Genesis chapter 2, Abraham takes Isaac, his only son, up to Mount Moriah to offer him to the Lord. And then the Lord supernaturally provides a lamb. And, and the place is named Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord provides. The next one is the Passover. Once again, this is the account in the Old Testament that is pointing right towards this very season that we are celebrating, which actually Easter is a really bad name because I'm not celebrating Easter this morning. I'm celebrating the Passover. I'm celebrating definitely Resurrection Sunday, but, you know, the salvation, what are they? The Seventh-day Adventists, they'll have Resurrection Saturday, so it doesn't matter. All that's immaterial. This is the Passover. And the Passover began and is recorded in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, where Moses was instructed to take a lamb without blemish, and they would kill, they took the, they, they uh, slayed the lamb and the blood was applied to the lentil and the doorposts. This is an amazing thing. The name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, it is there. It's incredible. Everything in the Old Testament 
you know, points towards something. And when you begin to see the Bible like this, it becomes a living book. It's a living document. And that's why we need to be reading it every day, even to check with what I'm saying now is right. You do your research because you've got to know for yourself that Jesus is for real and that He raised from the dead. And you need that inner witness on the inside. And if you haven't, you've just got what I would call psychological Christianity. It's all taking place in your head. And that's what we're accused of by non-believers. So the application was made to the lintel. And the Passover is where the Jewish people to this very day celebrate the Passover, remembering the miraculous deliverance of God's people by the shedding of blood and through the Red Sea, which speaks of baptism and salvation and supernatural deliverance. Now, the next one we need to know is in Isaiah chapter 53. Sorry, is it? Yes, Isaiah chapter 53. This is known as the lost chapter to the Jewish people because to this day, the Jewish people have a veil over their eyes according to the Scripture. A lot of them do, many don't because there is now a move of God very powerful amongst the Messianic Jews that are receiving Jesus as the Messiah. And in Isaiah chapter 53, I'll just go there because this is reading for this afternoon. Sorry, I'm keeping you guys up there. Just be patient. So, so I'm going to come back and ask you young people some questions in a minute. Yep. Isaiah 53 is known as the missing chapter of the Bible. But when you look at Isaiah, it talks about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. It's written 800 years before Christ and it describes perfectly the sacrifice of Jesus. It's absolutely amazing. This is why we need to study some of this stuff every day. Because this makes your faith live. Imagine the Bible is a coded book. There's a code goes all the way through it. There's a numerical seal. It's not a natural book. It's, it is God's Word, inspired by God. It's a living Word. It's alive. And when you take the Word onto the inside and you begin to memorise it and take it into your heart, it begins to live on the inside of you. It's like spiritual food. Wonderful. Psalm 53, verse 2. For he shall, actually I'll read from verse 1. Who has believed our report and to whom the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. I'll just go a little bit further. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces uh, from him. He was despised and, we, and uh, did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Who do you think that's about? Speak it up. Jesus. There's no one else that could be about. This is the Jewish manual for their religion. And in it, in Isaiah 53, it gives the key to who the Messiah is. Jesus. Messiah means saviour, messenger, healer, redeemer. Throughout the Bible, the concept of life, death and resurrection is consistent. I spoke about Abraham and Isaac. Both Elijah and Elisha raised the dead. In Psalms 16, 49 and 71, the psalmist spoke about the resurrection. This is Old Testament, five, six hundred years before Christ. And in Ezekiel 37, the prophet is taken up in the spirit and, and, uh, and he says, and the Lord says to him, can these bones live? And he says, I don't know, Lord, only you know. And he says, prophesy to the bones. Now, this prophecy was a prophecy to the nation of Israel. Because the nation of Israel, Israel is also spoken of in the word of God as being God's son. In other words, God calls the nation of Israel his son. But when Jesus died, Israel as a nation shortly after began to cease to exist. Yet on the third day of history, because the Bible says a day in the sight of the Lord is as a thousand years. On the third day of history, in 1947 or 1967, depending how you look at it, the nation of Israel, God's son, was reborn as a nation. With the culture intact, the religion intact, with the language intact, it was literally risen from the dead in accordance with the promise that God gave to Abraham thousands of years beforehand. Do you think that's a miracle? So I believe the next great proof that the Word of God is true and that resurrection is a fact is the resurrection, the resurrection of the nation of Israel. And during this era, there's going to be attack on the nation of Israel. Anti-Israeli, anti-Semitic attitude is growing because it's, do you know Why? It's God's nation and it proves the resurrection. It proves that God is real beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. The nation of Israel rose from the the dead on the third day of history. And now his resurrection power is available to every Christian. Well, you don't look excited at that. But this stuff makes me believe so deeply that you could not talk me out of this. Jesus rose from the dead. God is a God of his word. And, you know, this all happened, so much of it around the Passover. 
Do you know the third, the lockdown three years ago, there is a historian in Bendigo. She is a, 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 a well-known ministry up there. And, and she believed that it was 3,333 years from the first lockdown, which was happened during the Passover. And the whole of the nations was locked down. Do you know what? God is into the Passover. Because it stands for deliverance. It stands for salvation. It stands for freedom. And during that same Passover week, the global population ticked over 7 billion. Seven. It was all sevens anyway, the whole lot. So in history, it was all threes. And in history, it was all sevens with the population. Do you know what? God's seal is in everything. And I want to tell you who God is. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And his son is Jesus. And when he went into the grave, I think I tricked Julian a bit there by the way I answered. He was actually right, not me. When Jesus went into the grave, the Father had predetermined that he would be raised from the dead. And he sent his spirit into that tomb. And I can't imagine what that would have been like, but that would have been a flash of supernatural lightning that raised him out of that place. And there's this thing now you know, there's, it's a bit of an argument over it, the Shroud of Turin, because the Catholic Church have had custody of the, what they believe is the linen cloth. Now, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but there's so much an argument over this cloth. Whether it's artwork, but some scientists have looked, looked at it and it's like a deep burn into the cloth. And it resembles what we would imagine Jesus would have looked like. I don't know about that, but all these other proofs I know. But the biggest one I know is that his, on the inside of me, there's a deep witness that there is a God in heaven, that he created all. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Grace, and Azaria, and Mercedes, and Gemma. So you better get to know this stuff I'm talking about. How many people witnessed his resurrection? 500 in one place, in one time. It says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Write it down. You've got to go find it because I could be lying to you. Genesis 1.1, John 1.1, linked together by a supernatural code. In fact, every verse of the Bible, the canon of the Bible, the same code runs through it. History records that Jesus rose from the dead. And we know between Passover 
And Pentecost is a very significant time in the church's history where we remember the Passover. So this week, I really couldn't give a rip about Easter eggs. I mean, they're pretty good. I'd I'd complain if I didn't get one. (laughs) But that's the only thing it means to me. But the Passover is what we celebrate. We are remembering because Jesus, before he was crucified, he said to the disciples, go and prepare for the Passover. And he said, do this in memory of me. And what we're doing this morning is we're going to take communion as our worship team lead us in this song. And we are going to remember that we are part of a mosaic of history that is written and recorded in the Bible. It's written there. This is the book of life. Every verse in it has a numerical value. Do you know what? I believe if you've really received Jesus, your name is written in there in code. Your name, is it written in the Lord's book of life? Are you recorded there? This is what life's all about. You know, you can throw up all your arguments about this. And all they are is futile arguments. I may not have all my facts exactly right, but I tell you what, they're pretty close. Whether it's 3,333 years since the first Passover or 3,337, I couldn't give a rip. What matters is that every one of us is truly born again. And Jesus lives on the inside of our heart. And do you know what? There will be a proof if that is the case. Because Peter became the fearful man who when push came to shove, he said, I never knew him. I never knew him. What would you do if someone put a gun to your head and made you choose between the two? then by the grace of God, each one would have said, look, I can't deny Him. He is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's risen from the dead and He lives on the inside of me. And that is what I know. You know, I've been through some stuff and I know this, that if you are connected to God the way that I am, you will be raised up after the devil tries to strike you down over and over again. This is what salvation really is. I really work on the young people because the attack is on your mind. You know that most, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff you've been told is absolute rubbish. So when you sit in church, you're wondering, how can I trust this guy? Well, you go do your work. You get your Bible out, you do your due diligence. You've got no excuse to walk through your life and say, oh, it didn't work for me. No excuse. You've been given the golden opportunity. Man, God wants you to say yes on the inside of Him. And He wants you. He said in, Jesus said to them in uh, in. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, go back in verse 5, go back and wait in Jerusalem 
until the promise of the Father has come. Go wait. Are you waiting for anything? Are you waiting for anybody or are you just going through your life and thinking, oh, I'll have a good life. And you know, if God's there, He'll accept me at the end because I'm a good bloke. No, go and wait for Him in the upper room because something's gonna happen. And in Acts chapter one, verse eight, He said, I'm gonna pour my Spirit out and you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's why I'm here. I'm here. I'm on task. But you shall receive power. That's like somebody threw you a stick of dynamite because the word actually means dunamis, dynamite. The power that God's talking about is dynamite. Now you can tell whether someone's religious or just, yeah, religious or really born again because all of a sudden they're like dynamite. You can say to the person next to you, are you like dynamite or wet gunpowder? Because it's one or the other. Are you wet gunpowder or are you dynamite? Yeah, you wet as gunpowder. Throw as many matches as it. But I, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll stand up in front of kings. You'll stand up and you'll say what needs to be said because you ain't scared anymore. One thing I've learned: do not give 30 seconds to what anyone else thinks of you. Just believe. You shall receive you shall receive. Who's it talking about? That's where you have trouble. You shall receive power. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Witnesses literally means martyrs when you look at the translation. You're called to be martyrs. Not ones that strap things to themselves and go do crazy things. Witnesses. You'll be so passionate to tell somebody that they that this Jesus is real that you aggravate them to the point where they might want to dong you on the head. Witnesses, martyrs. So, the proof that you understand what the Passover is about, that you understand what the new creation is all about, that you understand what it means to be a witness, is you're not wet gunpowder anymore. Most churches have got a lot of wet gunpowder. But we're called to have dunamis, dynamic power. Peter, he said, I'll never deny you, Jesus. No, I'll be right there. And Jesus turned to him and he said, before the cock crows, Peter, 
He was wet gunpowder at that stage. But the day came where Jesus came full on, where God poured out. He witnessed the resurrection. It's hard to believe Thomas said, no chance, no chance. You show me, I'll stick my fingers. If I can stick my fingers in the wounds in his side and in his hands, I'll believe. It's what a lot of people are like. What are you? Who are you? What do you want? The litmus test of new Testament Christianity, I believe, is this dunamis power, boldness, courage. Amen. That was a start for you, Libby. You'll be preaching next week. Amen. Amen. Everybody said. Now, I'll tell you, we as a church, we, we do some things that might be crazy to some people. One thing we do is we cheer our people along because you're going to do great, Libby. Al, you're a champion. You are a good man. Craig, what's God going to do in you, through you? What about you, young people? Just going to follow everyone else and wonder whether you're Arthur or Martha? Or you're going to stand up right into it and go, no. Stand up in the classroom, put your hand up and say, now that's nonsense. Not to everything. They say 10 and 10 is 20. You don't say that's nonsense. But if you say that there's 121 genders, you can say what you like because that is a furphy. Amen. Anyway, I'm getting off into the flesh there. Let's stand up. Let's come and take communion. Love you.